Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to get right into this. I tell you, man, I have preached so much lately. Lord's just been pouring the blessings on at school chapels, revivals, preached in conferences, uh, special Sundays. Last Sunday it was a very special day for them. They had a big dinner on the grounds, and, and they, they have a sin every year about this time. So I tell you, I'm at that place where I'm sick of hearing my own voice. Now I know how y'all feel. Hey, well, you weren't supposed to say amen to that. Who said that? Is that you, Brother Jonathan? Jackie, did he say it? <laughs> anyway, uh, I want to get into this tonight, though. I'm going to leave plenty of time for the choir to have a good practice and not be rushed. So my goal is to try to wrap it up at 4 o'clock on the dot. So looking up there, that clock's, I'm showing uh, 329 on my wristwatch. What do y'all got? You got what? I like mine better. I'm going to try my best. So that one's pretty close. Cause that one's like 332 there. Did someone reset it? Because it was fast. Oh, Brother Crook, amen. He thought he was tired of preacher thinking that he was getting out early and I was going 10 minutes. I kept looking up there thinking, I'm getting done early. And then I'd get done and realize it was 10 minutes slow. It's supposed to be 10 minutes fast if y'all were smart. So, All right, so that clock is right now. So I'm going to go by that clock. Here we go. We are looking... As we've been going through Revelation, we've been looking at this period of time called the, the church age. There were seven churches discussed in the book of Revelation. Now, we're going to go through some things quickly just by way of review. And then we're going to move very, very quickly. I've got some PowerPoints I want to show you. Pull up that first PowerPoint. There it is right there already. We see here these seven churches listed in Revelation. These are seven churches that Jesus is going to dictate a letter to John, and John is going to handwrite a letter dictated to him by Jesus himself, and he's going to write a letter to each of these seven churches that are in the Asia Minor. This is a part of Greece, but they were all in Roman providences. If you remember, Rome had taken over Greece and annexed it, so these were churches that were actually in Greece. We think of Asia, you think of maybe like Vietnam or somewhere like that. This is the Asia Minor. This is part of Greece which is now under the flag of Rome. They're under Roman leadership. These are Roman provinces. And a handwritten letter to each one of them with things that he is going to tell these churches. Now, the number seven, we know, is the number of completion or all inclusion. It is believed by theologians that there is that these seven letters include the entire group of churches that would be from the beginning of the church in Jerusalem all the way to the rapture where the church will be taken out. So we see these time periods that theologians who have deeply studied this have attached to each of these churches. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these dates down. It is believed that the time period of the Ephesus church... Now, remember this. Each of these church, churches, these seven churches, will have specific characteristics that will define them. And when you study history, you will see that the churches that were the most prominent churches of their age would fit in those characteristics. And we can literally look through history of the church and see where there were distinct periods of time where churches that matched those characteristics were the dominant churches of that period. They were the largest, the biggest, they were the most well-known churches. So you can see this very clearly by looking at these characteristics. But we see these were also seven actual churches. They were seven real churches that were located in the Asia Minor. They were not far from each other, and it is even suggested that the Apostle John, after he was done through being exiled, that he did some circuit 
pastoring there, that he would travel and preach at each one of these churches because they were all there in a line, you know, 20 miles apart from each other from beginning to end. So Ephesus, A.D. 30 to A.D. 100, so that would cover the first church started by Christ going into the, 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 that first period of the church. That was the first period going through the first century. The church was a baby movement at that point. It was under lots of uh, persecution, but it was also exploding and growing all over the place. And we see there, there were some criticisms given to that. We'll see it in a minute. Smyrna, A.D. 100 to A.D. 312. Pergamos, A.D. 312 to A.D. 600. Thyatira, A.D. 600 to A.D. 1517. That's when those churches were the most dominant. Then you go to the next. Sardis, A.D. 1517 to 1800. Philadelphia, A.D. 1800 to I would actually place it at about 1960s, 1980 maybe. And then you got Laodicean, which would be at the end of the Philadelphia age to the present time that we're in now, and it will be the dominant time all the way until the rapture. Now, we've already looked very, very closely at six of those seven churches. We're now in the seventh and final church of this church age. Now, tonight we're looking at Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, not Genesis, Revelation chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Let's read through this quickly, and then I'm going to pull some things out of it verse by verse and give you some information that I think will help you. If you're taking notes, uh, do the best you can. The, this is being recorded, am I correct? These are all recorded, so if I'm moving too fast, you can, you can, uh, you can see these. Where can they go to see these online? Okay, Google Podcast. These are all being downloaded to Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple whatever he just said. So those are all being recorded, downloaded, and you can also, if you want to get a copy of a CD, it would have this morning and tonight. You can see Miss Jackie. There's a small cost, but they'll burn a CD for you. But we are doing much better at recording them, and we're hoping to get our services on the, the Facebook Live where you can watch those and rewatch them, pause them, whatever you want to do. If I'm saying something you don't like, you can fast-forward me, all that kind of stuff. So it really works out nice. All right, now, we see here in verse 14, let's read it. And uh, look at it with me as I read it aloud. Here we go. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, again, in verse 14, we know that's just identifying Jesus as the author of this letter, which is going to be mailed to the Laodicean church by the hand of John. Look at verse 15. Jesus starts off as he has done with the other six. I know thy works. That always you know, should, should stir us to remembrance that Jesus is involved with the work of the local church. He's watching it. He's noticing it. He is not somebody who is an absentee manager. He is very involved. The eyes of God go to and fro. They see the good and the bad that man do. We, that we know that God is in the midst of his church. He is watching it. He is aware of it. It gets his attention. We know this. We learned it in Sunday school this morning. Jesus loves the church. The Bible says that he loved it and he gave himself for it. It also says that he loves it the way a man should love his wife. The Bible says that, 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 that the church is often described as being the bride of Jesus. And so therefore, it's a great example of agape love, the strongest love that a person can have. You know, there's different words for love, agape being the strongest one in the Bible language. So we see that Jesus had an agape love, the way that a man would love his wife for the church. We know that he's involved with it. He dotes on it. The way that a man would notice his wife and, 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 and 
and watch his wife and to be involved with his wife, Jesus loves the church. And he says, I know thy works. He says, I know what you do. Now, sometimes that's good, amen? Sometimes we do good things. You ever get caught doing good things? And that, you ever notice when you're doing good things, there's usually no one around to ever see it? Sometimes you worry that, you know, nobody will ever know you did it. But you know what? Here's the good news, man. The eyes of God never go to sleep. God saw that, that private thing that you did for his glory, for his honor. Maybe nobody else saw it. Nobody noticed it. But God always notices. He says, I know thy works. And he says this, though, and it goes downhill from here. It's going to go very downhill. Rapidly, uh, we see this. Now, he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We looked at the history of Laodicea two Sunday nights ago. We saw that they suffered a massive, massive earthquake right around the turn of the first century. In fact, it leveled the city. It destroyed it. But Laodicea was a very wealthy city. History says that they totally rebuilt their city without asking for one penny from Rome. They were considered to be wealthy people. They were very self-sufficient. They didn't feel they needed anybody's help. They didn't need Rome's help. They didn't need any other. They didn't appeal for any kind of help, which was unheard of even in their day. Uh, most of the time when something like this would happen, Rome being the, the conquering nation, the occupying nation, would step in with funds and rebuild it. History records Laodicea did not need any help to rebuild their city, even though it was almost completely destroyed from that earthquake. Now, you see an attitude that they have. They don't need Rome's help, but also in the church, there was that air that we don't even need God's help. Our money can get us out of anything. We are wealthy. We're, we are self-efficient. We don't need, you know, what I've learned, I pray more when I'm in need. I pray less when everything's good. When I'm stressed, I pray. When I'm at ease, I stray sometimes. I've learned that I need God. And that need of God keeps me humble, keeps me on my knees. It keeps me seeking the favor of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, Dr. Mickey Carter, the man that, that was the president of the Bible college I graduated from, made this statement one time, and I wrote it down back in my Bible. He said this, success has ruined more men than failure. Boy, I believe that is so true. And in this case of this church, their success has led them to a, a false security that they do not need the hand of God, the help of God. They do not need to depend on God. And believe me, Jesus feels this. He feels it. He feels that they don't need him. So much so, you're going to see where it leads here in a moment. But we see here it says, uh, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not. Now he says, that's how you see yourself. But he said, this is how you really are. He says, you don't really understand and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Some pretty harsh language there. He describes them as being very desolate people in their soul. Verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. Now that word right, white raiment is talking about purity. Get your life right. Get your life cleaned up. 
So we see here that he's saying this, of course, tried in the fire. We'll come back to that in a minute, but that has meaning. That thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Nakedness and shame are synonymous. We can see in the Bible the story of Adam and Eve. And we see that Adam and Eve lived in a world of purity. In that, they enjoyed a great amount of innocence. Innocence is a wonderful thing. We watch our children. They're born with innocence. They are not, you know, children that understand. A little child, you, you get them out of the bathtub, they'll run all over the house, and there's no shame there, amen? No shame there. They don't really know to cover up. Now, you watch them naturally as they start to grow. You don't really even, although we do teach them to cover up, but they naturally start to want to cover up. The Bible tells us how Eve, at one point, had no need for clothing. She had no need for clothing. Uh, we see that, that her and Adam dwelt in a world where they were naked. They did not need to cover up. There was no shame, no embarrassment. Uh, they lived together, and, and we see that there was no need for clothing. Now, we understand that when she disobeyed God and she ate of that forbidden fruit, her eyes were then opened, her innocence was then gone, and shame immediately filled her heart. We see that nakedness and shame are synonymous. Some of you may have experienced in your life where you've gone to bed and you've had a dream where maybe you got up and went to school, and when you got to school, you looked down and realized at school that you forgot to put your clothes on. Or maybe you were giving a speech, and in your dream, you forgot to put on a shirt or forgot to put on your pants. I've literally, I'm not trying to be vulgar, I'm not trying to be gross, but, but I've had dreams where I've literally dreamed that I got up to preach and wasn't wearing a shirt. Maybe I had a tie, but no shirt. Now, one night, I woke up in the middle of the night, true story. My wife woke up the next morning, started dying laughing, she came in. In the middle of the night, Brother Woody, I got up, and I have about maybe 50 neckties at any given point. You know, I, you know, I love neckties, and people buy them for me. So I always have a bunch. On my door, I had a necktie rack. I got up in the middle of the night, and I remembered in my dream, dreaming that I was going on a trip, and I needed to pack. And I got up the next morning, and Christy starts dying laughing because in the living room, I had raised up the middle couch cushion and had neatly put all 50 of those ties off the rack inside that and then pushed it down over it. She got up, and she sees the couch with a... Ties ever underneath it. Remember that? And she said, what did you do? And I said, oh, I don't know. I said, you know what? I dreamed that I was packing for a trip. And she said, well, honey, at least you would have had neckties. <laughs> but did you pack nothing else? I said, apparently not. I did. I didn't know until the next morning. But I packed, I packed my neckties, and I dreamed I was going on a trip, and I packed it. I mean, man, I, you know, I don't think I've walked in my sleep too much, but I did that night. I, I mean, I got up to pack that bag. That really did happen. But at least I'd had neckties. But I dreamed that I got up. I've dreamed where I'm preaching and realized I forgot to put a shirt on. And you know what I notice about that when I will most likely have a dream that, like that? It's when I'm vulnerable, unprepared, unsure. In school, sometimes you may have a dream where you're, you're at school and you realize that you're not clothed. And nakedness, you know what that nakedness is telling you symbolically in your dream? that you feel either ashamed, vulnerable, or unprepared. If you think back, you had those dreams whenever you were stressed out over a test and you knew you weren't studied for it, you felt vulnerable, weak. You felt unsure. 
Does anybody ever had a dream similar to that? Stress dreams? And sometimes dreams, our subconscious mind connects things this way. But the reality is we see that Eve had her eyes opened and she saw herself and she saw her nakedness and that nakedness was synonymous with her shame. And we see that still connected. This church has got a lot of things they should be ashamed about, but they do not see their own nakedness. The way God sees them, He sees the way they are as being shameful. Things they should be ashamed of, they do not see their own nakedness. They do not see their own shame. And that's what arrogance does. Arrogance blinds people to their real condition. And they are blinded to their real condition, and we see this. Now, he says, I counsel thee to buy, and he says, your nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Then he says this, one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now tonight we're going to look at the seventh and final church of the church age and thus complete this portion of the book of Revelation. Hopefully I can get through it in what little time I have left here. But I want you to remember this. These seven churches, these are the periods, and I've already given them to you, these are the periods when each church type was dominated. Does that make sense to you all? Because I have worried throughout this that I'm not making that clear. All of these churches existed at the same time. There were seven physical churches. But if you look at it as a map to the church age as a, you remember what prophecy is? It's the, it's the future. It's history written in advance. Does that make sense? Is that a good definition? Prophecy is history written in advance. God is going to tell us how the church is going to go throughout history by this little map here of history. It was written before it actually happened, but it is the way it did happen. Now, that's not coincidental. It happened it wasn't that the Bible got lucky. These things happened because they were ordained of God, and God said these things would happen. This is how the church movement would go from the beginning until the end of the church movement. Now, each church described what their principal characteristics were, and Jesus described each church's principal characteristics. And uh, they would be the dominant churches during their respective period of time. Now, you may ask, why is this important? I mean, what, what is the big deal about this? Well, let me give you three reasons why this is a big deal. First of all, we see supernatural proof of the validity of the Word of God in this accurate description of how the church movement would be over a 2,000-year period of time. It is very accurate. Biblical historians are amazed at just how accurate and in, in, in succession, it's not like the Philadelphia church came second and the, and the Sardis church came. It came in the way God described it. And you can look at the dominant churches throughout history and the history of the church, and you can see that it fits perfectly like a puzzle. Now, this serves to give you and me, as we understand it, more faith and confidence in the Word of God. One of the great confidences we have in the Word of God is prophecy. We see history of the world written in advance in the Word of God. And it's 100% accurate. 
The Bible told us the world empires, before there ever was world empires, before Babylon ever became a world empire, before Persia, before Greece, before Rome. The Bible called it. The Bible called it through the vision of Daniel. And that was written hundreds of years before Babylon became the mighty nation that it became. Well, you know what? We see all through Scripture where these, these, these prophecies come to pass. And that gives me faith and confidence that this Bible is true and I can put my faith on it, I can stand on it. So this is important because we see, if you would, just back on back, and, and I'll tell you when to turn them here. Um, go, on, go on back up there. Stay on that one and I'll tell you when to turn it. All righty? Number two, we can understand why things are the way they are. Why is this important? We can understand why things are the way they are in the church of today. Listen, we as a church get frustrated. There's nobody that'd love to see our church like it was in the 60s. I look at those pictures down the hall. There's nobody that would love more to see this church full and running a 1,000 people again like it did then. Sometimes it does break my heart as a pastor. I was 32 years old when I became the pastor here. We were over there on Highway 50. I saw pictures of that church jam-packed full. We'd have a big day sometimes, and we'd pull out all the stops and spend a fortune and spend weeks promoting it. And my first uh, eight months or a year, I remember the first time we had 100, it was on a, we had fried chicken and all kinds of stuff, had a big day, but uh, we broke 100. And I remember people saying, boy, I remember when we used to run 800, 900 every week. And I just remember feeling very overwhelmed sometimes by the history of our church that I never felt we could compete with or at least I could. Uh, I look at the men who pastored before me, and some of them had big days of well over a 1,000. And, and man, we're working every bit as hard as they were working then. It just seems that we're casting a net in an ocean that's been greatly fished out. Does that ever make sense to you? Now, it doesn't mean that there are not people to be saved. It just means that, that we've not been able to reach as many as they did back then. I don't think that we're a lazy church, and I don't think that we've not done things that great churches do. We are a very busy church. We do the things that churches that are big do. But what you know, the reason uh, for me it makes sense. I realize that during the Philadelphia church age, in every city or county you went to, the largest churches of that county in the early 1900s up till about the mid 1980s, we started seeing a shift in this, and it can be documented. We can show you. You can look up and see the the. 100 biggest churches in America list. Elmer Towns used to compile that information. When you'd look at the 100 biggest churches list, it was almost dominant with Baptist churches. Now, some of them were Southern Baptists, some of those were Independent Baptists, and some of those were maybe not Baptists, but they would have sure been considered fundamental. They stood on the King James Bible, and they preached salvation, and they preached soul winning. They would have been in that list, and it was pretty dominant. Then you get on into the 60s and the Jesus movement, which yielded the, the rise to the Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostals were the churches that were kind of always over the tracks. They were in the backwoodsy kind of places, up in the mountains and the hills. They were the people who would speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues came to America through Haitian slaves. Now, some of you are Haitian people in the room. Haiti brought that to America. It came through Louisiana. And uh, they practiced it over there, but they did not practice it in Christianity. It was practiced in voodoo. Am I right, Brother Stellis? They'd work themselves up into a frenzy. They'd start uttering things, and 
that came over and began to be practiced, and it came out of the deep south, and it was deep southern churches that were usually churches that, and, and pardon me, this is just history, I don't want to be offensive, but it came through a lot of churches that were full. It was the slave trade that brought that into America. It came with that, and it came from roots of Haiti and some from Africa. Then it came as a part of worship, and it came to the church through those avenues. It was never something practiced in the mainstream churches all through history. But then the Jesus movement exploded through the 60s, and then through the, the Jesus movement came the Pentecostal, the Church of God, the faith healing, the speaking in tongues, the, the movement that now we see that, that has exploded. And through the late 1900s, you saw churches like, you know, uh, you had Tammy and Jim Baker, and you had, uh, uh, you know, what's the guy down in Louisiana that, Jimmy Swaggered, you had many mega churches that came out of what used to be the churches over the tracks or in the backwoods or up in the mountains where they were people who would, you know, usually speak in tongues and handle snakes and all those things that, that those churches are known for. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, that did come through America through the slave trade. If you track back speaking in tongues, it, you will track it back to that. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because I tracked it back. I did an extensive study on it, and I saw exactly where its origins came from. It was not a part of Christian mainstream church practice until the early 1900s, and you can see where it came from. All right. Are we all still good here? Okay. Now, to me, I can look at this by, by understanding this, this, and I can say to myself, you know, I wish that I could pastor a church running, you know, 1,500, 2,000, like many men did back in the day. It was nothing to see five or six churches. Do you realize that the largest church in Orlando in the 80s was an independent, fundamental, King James Bible preaching church? That was Temple Baptist Church of Orlando. It was even larger than First Baptist Orlando. Dr. Jewel Smith, who led the fight on preserving the King James Bible. Sadly, there hasn't been a King James Bible preached in that church in probably 20 years. But he led the fight. He was the first one to really take up that sword back in the 70s before it was really a big issue. Now that church is considered a temporary Laodicean church. They use a different version of the Bible and all that. But, but do you know that at its peak, it used the King James Bible? Ran three to 4,000 every Sunday morning from the 60s and the 70s throughout mid-80s, it started declining. Well, that wasn't uncommon. Orlando had probably 15 independent Baptist churches that all ran anywhere from 800 to about 1,500. You know, our church ran 1,000. Dr. Bob Ware pastored a church on Highway 50. It's still there now. Tabernacle Baptist Church. Tabernacle Baptist Church at one time had over 2,500 members and averaged close to 2,000 on Sunday morning. They average around 250 to 300 now. It's still a great church. But it is a fraction of what it used to be, just as we are. I can take you to the largest church in America. It was pastored by Dr. Lee Robertson. I preached with him many times. He was scheduled to preach here. And he had a stroke and ended up dying. And he, of course, had to cancel his meeting. But we were only about two weeks away from having him. If you remember, we had Dr. J.B. Buffington take his place. J.B. Buffington and Lee Robertson both with the Lord. J.B. Buffington pastored in Lakeland, a church that ran about 2,000 during its heyday. Dr. Scotty Drake preached for us just a couple of years ago. By the way, Brother Drake is in the hospital in critical 
condition. They may not live much longer. We need to pray for Dr. Drake. Dr. Drake pastored a 2,000-member church right here in Florida in the 70s and 80s, 60s. He was a, one of the great men of the faith here. And that was not uncommon. There were big, mega Baptist churches everywhere. If you ran five or 600, you were considered a small fry. Just the way it was. Is it that way today? You, you believe it's that way today? Now, that can drive us crazy. It can drive us crazy, but the reality is I understand the why behind the what. I'm not going to grow weary in well-doing and start to feel like I'm a failure because I can't be what some of the men were back in the 60s. We had a pastor, Lloyd Myers, pastor at Orlando Baptist Temple at its zenith. Ran about 1,000 every Sunday. Uh, he was a part of the Philadelphia church age, and he, he was used of God to build a big church, but... You know, I, I feel we're doing the same things he did. I feel I'm preaching just as hard as he preached. I feel I'm standing on the same book he stood on. They had larger results. We're having lesser results. I could feel that God's power is not on us. I could say, okay, you know, God's just not using me. But I also know the why behind what's going on here. I understand why things are the way they are for the church today. Now, this encourages me to be faithful even in the lesser results. You understand what I'm trying to say here? As a church body, don't get all discouraged because we're not as big as we used to be. We're still healthy. Look around you. There's people here. There's people here. Our bills are paid. Our missionaries are current. We're a debt-free church. We ran a bus this morning. We had a choir that sang. We had every Sunday school age was covered with a teacher. Now, we're not as big as we used to be. I don't know that we ever will be. There are big independent Baptist churches still in America, and I still have the the, the encouragement that one day we could grow and be much larger than we currently are. But I also know that those big, huge, mega churches, for instance, where my daughter's going to Bible college, that is Crown College of the Bible. Now, the church that has that is Temple Baptist Church, Dr. Clarence Sexton. That church runs probably around 15 to 1,800 on Sunday morning. But I also know that in one weekend, he got 500 new church members that were prime church members. One of them is my daughter. Don't we miss Savannah around here? But what a, what a ray of sunshine. She's one of 500 kids that joined his church on one weekend. Prime preacher boys, bus workers, Sunday school teachers. You see how there's collective mega churches now? Churches like, it's kind of like AAA baseball. We train them and then they go to these Bible college churches and they get prime families, prime couples, prime workers, they have men with doctor's degrees in theology that are literally just doing nothing more than teaching a little boy Sunday school class. Where do those guys come from? Churches like yours and mine. In fact, one of the most, one of the biggest men on the campus got saved right over here in Longwood and went to a little church, Longwood Bible Baptist Church. My good friend Michael Carringer's dad was the one that gave him his first Bible and bought him his first car right after he got out of Bible college. He was a young preacher, didn't have a car. Brother Raymond Carringer bought him a car, and he was sharing that with me. Came from a little tiny local church. He's Dr. So-and-so, and he's working on a staff at a big college. Those are collective churches. Now, I understand all this. The Bible says that if we compare ourselves among ourselves, it's not wise. You'll only get discouraged. So we've got to, as a church body, understand this. And when I study the church movement, I understand What's going on here? Now, I gotta, I gotta, I'm not going to get through with this tonight, but I do want to make a couple of more points. 
Number three, and the biggest reason why this church age studying it is important, why we spend so much time on it, in the end, it gives us the notion that Jesus is truly coming soon. If there's any credibility to this, and if every theologian that pretty much studies it agrees that we're in the seventh and final church age, well, the last church age lasted about 100 years. We're smack dab in the middle of this Laodicean church age now. You know what I believe? Jesus is coming soon. I believe you need to look to the skies. Your redemption draws nigh. Any moment we're going to hear the shout. Go to that next slide. Any moment we're going to hear the trumpet sound. And we're going to be taken out of here in this event called the rapture. We know that the church age ends after Laodicea, and that is the next event on the biblical calendar. I believe that we're very close, and I, I see this as a principal sign of the return of Jesus. Now, it is said, and I'll give you this, and I'll close it out. It is said that you can see the church age. The Bible's an amazing book, man. It is an amazing book. The more you study it, you see how there's no way feeble man could have pieced all this together. But if you take the first eight books of the Bible and compare it to what we've just learned with the seven church ages and the rapture included, you'll see where it is a perfect fit. For instance, go to the next slide there. In the book of Genesis, you'll see the church of Ephesus metaphorically. Exodus, you'll see Smyrna, and you can read all the way down here. Now, let me explain it to you. In Genesis, we see where Adam and Eve were born, and they loved God, but then we see where man left their first love. Isn't that what Ephesus did? Didn't man, didn't man who started out in love with God leave their first love? Don't you see how rapidly mankind turned on God? You go from Genesis, or you go from Adam and Eve down to Cain and Abel, then you see Cain, and you see that whole world. I mean, man didn't even pray to God for generations. It wasn't until Enoch who was the seventh generation of, of Adam's family before man began to cry upon the Lord again and walk with God. Well, you see man depart from his first love. Man started out loving God. Adam started out loving God. Man departed from his first love, just as Ephesus did. In Exodus, you see the example of Smyrna. Smyrna, the, remember the name? It meant bitterness or persecution. We see in Exodus where the Hebrew nation, the children of God, were put into bondage, and there was great bitterness and persecution. Then we see in the book of Leviticus, where God brings law and order through the priesthood. Now, unfortunately, mankind will take the law and order of God and use it to enslave people. That will happen under the Sanhedrin. By the time Jesus comes along, they had put such a burden and a yoke around man's neck, using religion to enslave. Okay? Leviticus started out the law and order given to the priesthood, the laws of God. Well, Pergamos, we see the law and order as the Catholic Church rises and uses religion to enslave mankind. Remember how we learned their history? Well, then we go on to Numbers. In Numbers, we see one rebellion after the next. Now, if you look at it, there's Genesis, the, there's the fall of man. Exodus can also be a symbol of grace. God giving us a relief of the bondage of our sin. That's salvation. Then you can look at Leviticus, the law and order of God. Once you get saved, 
you get released from the bondage of your sin, then you start learning the law and order of God. You should start living like a Christian. But here's the problem that I've seen. People fall into sin. We're born in sin, right? We're like Genesis. We're like Adam. Then we get freed from our sin. That's Exodus. Then we go through Leviticus. We start to learn how to be a Christian. Then the brakes come on. Because then, oh my goodness, we get into the numbers, rebellion. You know what it is? People are like, boy, I'm a sinner, but I love grace. I need to be saved. I need some grace in my life. Then all of a sudden, we get saved, and it's a glorious thing. Just like them getting to leave Egypt, we're leaving sin, the bondage of our sin. Then all of a sudden, the preacher starts saying, thou shalt not, because the Bible says you need to do this and this and this to be right with God. Whoa, wait a minute now. Don't tell me about your law and order. Me and God got our own thing worked out here. And what's right for you may not be right for me. And situation ethics, and that's where a lot of people depart from us. Remember how in Numbers, everybody started trying to get an exhibition to go back to Egypt? You know how I many people, when you start preaching how to live, they want to drop out of church and go back to the world? They wanted to leave the promised land and go back to Egypt, where they were on their knees begging God to deliver them from their captors who were stinging their back with a whip and making them work in the hot sun, building a land that would never be their own. When they got out there started getting under the law and order of God, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They didn't want to live in faith. They didn't want to let God work this out. They wanted to go back to Egypt. I think about all the people who when they get into church and they start seeing the, 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 the complexity of trying to live a holy life, suddenly being a drunk and a drug addict and a prostitute, suddenly living in the world and having a horrible marriage and being a horrible father and being a horrible husband suddenly sounds a lot better to them. And I've seen them quit church where they were growing and being a better person, go back to the world, and often the result, it was even worse than their beginning. Well, that's what happened here. You see where they started hearing the law of God. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to go back to Egypt. In Numbers, we see rebellion and false leaders rise up. Remember how there was a man that stood against Moses and the earth opened up and swallowed him, but he led people. And there were people constantly trying to rebel against Moses. And throughout the book of Numbers, you see this all through it. That's where they got bit by the fiery serpents. Remember all those stories? You see rebellion. Well, when we studied Thyatira, we saw a lady named Jezebel who was leading the church astray, leading people like lambs to a slaughter. And she grew to become, uh, a, a, you know, and I know there's the, the literal Jezebel, but there was also a metaphorical teaching here. And we saw people turning from the right direction just as they did in Numbers. Then we go on to Deuteronomy where we see the law given again by God for the purpose of clarity and emphasis. Well, we see that under Sardis there was a reformation in the world. That was the great reformation that the church movement began to rediscover the word of God. They found it again. The word Deuteronomy means a retro of the law. The law came back retro. We had a reformation. And we saw where we need to get back to the word of God. And people began to protest the Catholic church and began to fight it. And there was great persecution. Well, you see that depicted there metaphorically by looking at Deuteronomy and comparing it to the Sardis church. Then you can look at Joshua. Victory and Jewish freedom. They're going to go into the promised land. They're going to put a whooping through the power of God on Jericho. They're going to lose one little battle because of sin in the camp. Then they're going to go on. They're going to sack city after city after city. And great door was opened to them. Freedom. And they became their own nation. 
Did you catch this? That's Joshua. It's the book of Joshua. Well, that's the Philadelphia church. They came out of the shadows. They were of little strength, like Israel was. Y'all catching this? Israel, small, tiny little group of people, and they're, they're taking over city after city, and they grow to be a strong nation. In this, we see where the Philadelphia church was a little tiny church. It was the underground movement going all the way back to the original church in the first century. These were the people who stood for the Textus Receptus, which became our King James Bible. They're the ones who stood on the name of Jesus. They weren't polluted or perverted by the Catholic church movement or the Jezebel or all of that mainstream. They were underground. Now God says, this is your moment. And suddenly, the evangelical fundamentalist movement exploded about the time the King James Bible came on the scene. And man, revivals were happening everywhere. And that's when you study the big mega church movement of the Baptist church family. Okay, that was all through the Philadelphia era. That was victory and freedom. America was formed as a nation during the Philadelphia church age, the first nation in history to give religious freedom. Just happened to be during a period where God said the church would have freedom. I guess that was a coincidence, amen? Y'all believe that was a coincidence? God got lucky in the Bible with that. It just kind of happened. and just No way, man. That's what God ordained. And man, churches were booming. So we go through Joshua. And we, we see here victory and freedom. All right, then comes the book of Judges. But Judges says that there was no king. There was no leadership. And man was doing what was right in his own eyes. We just read to you about a church where Jesus has now been removed as the central figure of that church. He's literally so ignored, he's standing outside knocking on the door because he's no longer running the place. You could say it's a church without a king. And every man now is doing what is right in his own eyes. Laodicea, by definition, means rule by the people. It also interprets as pleasure of the people people-pleasing situation. Now you see here the book of Judges as it relates to this Laodicean church ruled by the people for their pleasure. But we also see that great tribulation is going to come to them to bring them to him. Uh, we see that in the book of Judges, every, on every page you see where an, uh, an enemy is tribulating Israel. In return, Israel would go to their knees and start to pray. Then God would rise up a judge like Gideon. Some of those men, all those judges that were there, and that judge would deliver them. But they were going through tribulation while God was trying to get their attention back on him. Now that's going to mean something in a minute. Just remember it. Then you got Ruth. The eighth book of the Bible is Ruth. I alluded to it this morning. It is a picture of Israel during the tribulation. You have Boaz is a symbol of Jesus. He's in the lineage of David, by the way. That's an interesting track for you to follow. You see Ruth, a woman whose husband is dead and gone right off the beginning of the story. She's in a foreign land, and she ends up going back to Israel, where a man named Boaz has mercy on her. Now the harvest has just been reaped, but she's a widow, and there's no way to feed herself, no man to take care of her. So what does Boaz do? He leaves what was called handfuls on purpose in the fields. He on purpose instructed them as they made the harvest to leave what was called gleanings in the field. 
And then he allowed Ruth to go in that field, Ruth being a picture of the church. And she picked up the handfuls left behind after the great harvest. I don't know if that gets you. I just got a bunch of chills, man. Philadelphia church age was the great harvest. It is believable when you study this that the majority of the members of the Laodicean megachurch movement are not even saved. It is believable. We see a promise to the Philadelphia church that they, by overcoming, they would be delivered from the tribulations that are to come. We do not see that promise made to the Laodicean church. There will be people saved during the tribulation. Now, people debate that and argue that, but here's, here's the catch. Number one, the only revival that we are guaranteed to see during the tribulation is in Israel. There will be a great revival in Israel. It'll be the first time the Jewish people have turned to Jesus, and it'll be a mega revival according to the book of Revelation. There you see the gleanings. But in Let's just take America. There will be many people who went to church in the Laodicean age who had enough religion that when the rapture comes and they're left behind, they know what happened. They know what happened. They know they missed it. They know that they heard songs and sermons, but it didn't fit in their positive way of thinking, the contemporary religion today. But they know... They had seen Kirk Cameron's movie on movie night at church. They knew a little bit about the rapture. To them, it was more entertainment than real. You know, it was more science fiction than real. But now it's going to hit them. And they're going to think to themselves, everybody else has blamed it on UFOs and government conspiracy. There's going to be a remnant, gleanings of people left behind after the big harvest. Philadelphia harvest. And they're going to be there, and they're going to realize... I missed it. Jesus came, and I was like the virgins that had no oil in my lamp. Remember that story? And some of them will give their heart to Jesus during that time, but here's the catch. We're under grace now. Never going to be easier to get saved than it is right now. Once the rapture comes, it will cost you your life. You will have to go through the blood. You will be martyr for the cause of Christ. You'll have to refuse the mark, which will be a death sentence in and of itself. You might be beheaded. The Bible says that many of them will be beheaded and that they loved the Lord even more than their own life and that they had robes washed in, the, in their own blood, blood of martyrs. Not a pretty picture, is it? Those are the handfuls on purpose. Ruth goes back to Israel and there there's a Little harvest after the big harvest. Some gleanings. Then you go into Chronicles. You go through Samuel and Kings. And you see the monarch of Israel. You know what that symbolizes? The millennial reign of Jesus, the great monarch, who will rule the world from Israel. And the Bible's amazing, isn't it? Now there may not be anything to that, but I found it interesting. I want you to bow your heads. We'll pick up. I've got more notes, but I'm out of time tonight.
Bible's an amazing book, and you know what? Because I know what the Bible says, I'm not panicking right now, and I'm being diligent. I want to fill this church up, but I understand we are not going to be where they were 40 years ago. That's the price we pay for standing on this King James Bible. That's the price we're going to pay for singing them old hymns. When other churches are rocking out for Jesus, we're going to remain faithful. I'm not going to allow narcissism. I'm not going to allow liberalism to make me become unfaithful to what God wants us to be as a church. We'll learn more about that and some of the language of this where he tells us to overcome. But the reality is we need to be faithful, not successful. God will give us gleanings if we are diligent to get out there behind the harvest and look for them. Is the great harvest happening right now? No, it is not. The revival period of the Philadelphia age has come and gone. I, I wish I could stand here and tell you there's going to be a great world revival that is not consistent with the calendar the Bible has given us. There will be a great revival post-rapture. It will mainly involve the Jews. What are we to do then? Stay faithful. There's enough gleanings to keep churches like ours alive all the way to the rapture. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Now, is there anyone here tonight that could say, Preacher, I don't know that I'm saved, but I want to be. Would you raise your hand? Anybody? Amen. Listen, tonight is Sunday night. Y'all got a big work week ahead of you. You need to get prayed up. Don't go home tonight with your tank half full. Come up to the altar. Finish it off by getting a hold of God. What is your need? What is your burden? What are you worried about? What's keeping you up at night? Who do you know that's sick? Who's that lost loved one? We need to get in, involved in this revival. Who's that person you're going to get a hold of this week and say, come to the revival? Why don't you come down and cry out their names to God tonight and ask him to give you an open door ahead of time, an opportunity, a power of God. Maybe you know somebody that's sick and, and in need of prayer. Maybe you know someone that's going through a hard struggle, financial or otherwise. Take advantage of this Sunday night and pray for them. Dear Lord, I've tried to teach something that I, I just find absolutely amazing, the amazing book that you have given us. No way that some man could have wrote this. This is far beyond man's comprehension and the way that it all fits together. God, you're so good to us. Give us the word of God. Let us stand on it. It's the final authority. And let us be a proud Philadelphia church. Even though we are not maybe going to be the big gun in town, Lord, let us be more proud of the fact that we stand for right and stand on right, and stand in the right place with the right people. And Lord, I pray that that could be our, our success signs. And in the meantime, Lord, give us gleanings in our buses and our soul winning and in our advertisements and in our day-to-day -day work trying to build this church and keep it going. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Let us keep on going. Now, Lord, hear the prayers of your people in Jesus' name. Let's come together. The altars are open, man. Let's stand. Do what you need to do.